to the Bio Breakdown Podcast. On this podcast, we break down interviews with researchers, authors, and professionals about the work that they're doing in biology. I'm your host, Chris Banity. Today, we have our full flight crew on this mission. Uh, I'm joined by our producer, Max. Hello. And co-host, Randall. Hello. And a guest this week, we have Brett Hodinka joining us. Brett, please introduce yourself. Yeah, so uh, thank you for that. My name is Brett Hodinka. I'm uh, currently a PhD student at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. And uh, yeah, I study birds. <laughs> oh, we'll get there. So, <laughs> tiny oh, dinosaurs. Tiny dinosaurs. <laughs> so um, we kind of do a basic recipe with these shows. So we're very much interested into how people get into science and research first. So if you yeah. could run us down that road, we'd like to hear it. Yeah, yeah. So um, this started pretty early for me. Uh, I, I always tell people this story. Um, so my my dad is a or was sorry he's retired now but he was the head of the pathology lab um, at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and every Christmas Eve he would take me up to work with him like from man as early as I could remember probably before I could remember he was taking me up there um, and it started off pretty just like you know he would he would put me in like a, a big conference room and just let me draw on the whiteboard for fun, just to, just so I didn't annoy him while he was trying to do work. <laughs> you know, he's the type of guy where, you know, Christmas Eve didn't matter. He still had to get work done. Um, but then as I got older, it, it went from, you know, drawing on whiteboards to actually like going in the uh, the, the biosafety labs with them and, you know, the, B, the BSL-2 and 3 um, uh, labs. And he would show me like the big you know, the whole get up, the suits that they'd have to wear. And, um, and you know, there would just be people in the lab I'd say hi to, and they were just doing like PCR runs and stuff like that. <laughs> um, and I didn't find out until, man, I don't know how old I was, but long story short, the reason he was taking me every Christmas Eve uh, up to work with him is so my mom could wrap our presents at home <laughs> and put them <laughs> under the tree. And by the time I got home, I was too exhausted to, like, look under the tree, and I would wake up the next morning and be like, oh, man, Santa came, right? Uh, nice. But anyway, yeah, yeah. as I got older, I understood more, like, what people were doing there. You know, mm -hmm. when I was young, I had no idea what was going on. But um, so, yeah, I just had an early introduction to, you know, science in general, and I guess that's really where my, uh, you know, my passion for it started, I guess. Absolutely. I want to point out it's, it's quite uh, serendipitous that this is a holiday episode, technically. We're recording yeah. on New, York, New Year's Day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 1 2020. So we just rolled into Y2K2. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that, man, that's awesome. I can't imagine being a kid who doesn't think that's cool. Um, yeah. Just uh, that really rope you in early. Um, yeah, that would definitely spark, I think, any kid's interest if you're going and see, like, a big building with men wearing lab coats. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Man, I still remember the day I found out just being like, that's why you took me up to work with you all the time. So, <laughs> at what I'd age? Probably just hang out. At, what's that? How old were you when you, uh, when you learned, the, learned the, the truth? Well, I had two older brothers. I think, I don't know if this is relatively early or late, but maybe I was... Uh, maybe not like nine or 10 when I, when I like, no, was it before that? I don't know. That might be too late. Either way, essentially my brothers told me like, Hey, you know, Santa's not real anyway. And then my mom, you know, broke that down and was like, yeah, you just really go up to work with your dad to, you know, get out of my hair while I wrap presents so you're not <laughs> sleeping around and stuff. Jeez, so. man. It, it is all <laughs> downhill from there. Let me tell, tell you. <laughs> Mind blown. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the first realization that through life you've been sold a lie but <laughs> let's not that's a topic for a different podcast let's not uh let's not go down that road yeah so then you were you were keyed in on science from an early age you had that interest um you know i can't you, you basically met like medical bill nye right with all the lab coats and your your dad's interested in science which oh yeah is a, is a common theme for the other people we've interviewed they all have relatives that uh kind of drew them into that process right so then after that um you 
went on a pilgrimage across the world like a hermit, right? Living yep. alone. And then yep. we met at WKU. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> no, he, he's not a hermit, but we did meet at WKU. Yeah, where you yeah. were performing the research that we're going to discuss a little bit about today. So, could you please kind of explain the context of the research that you did? What are the big ideas, the big research questions? Okay, so the main idea here was, was um, God, I don't know, it, it, it kind of had, I looked at it through a human lens, but, uh, you know, I clearly, where I'm going with this, I, you know, I did my research on birds, but... The idea was to look at how sleep loss uh, um, and the symptoms that we know or side effects that we know are associated with sleep loss uh, in humans, how other animals are able to cope with them and presumably not uh, uh, exhibit the same side effects that we would um, from not having you know, our, our basic needs of seven to nine hours of sleep per night. Um, you know, so... So there, you know, there's a list of side effects associated with sleep loss. Anything from super basic stuff, irritability, cognitive impairment. Um, I don't know. There's some more subjective stuff like impaired moral judgment due to sleep loss. Uh, <laughs> that would you know, explain but, a lot. Yeah, what we're considering, you know, the moral judgment or moral compass of people based on sleep loss. That's I feel like that gets a bit tricky. But there are yeah. some bigger things like you know, impaired immune system. Um, uh, uh, increased risk of heart disease and stroke, you know, major things where if you're consistently only getting three, four hours of sleep per night or even uh, less, anything shy of seven to nine hours, you're, you're potentially going to see some of these side effects. And uh, the idea was to take a rather unique species, um, an avian species, and look at how they cope with reduced sleep uh, uh, during their breeding season. Perfect. Um, yeah. So it's especially relevant to these birds uh, because of where they live, right? And how uh, the seasonal differences in daylight hours, correct? Correct. So, yeah, that's why we chose uh, it's the Lapland longspur, which is, is an Arctic breeding, um, just passerine songbird. And um, the, the, the reason for choosing that bird is there, there are pro populations that, um, that, that breed uh, in what, uh, above 71 degrees north, I believe that's right. Don't quote me on 71, <laughs> but either way, wherever the Arctic Circle starts, mm -hmm. uh, uh, where where um, they receive 24 hours of, of polar sunlight, um, and the idea is that these birds travel from their their wintering grounds um, in in the lower 48 and even down into Mexico, and they travel up to where I went, which was Barrow, Alaska, um, the northernmost city in the United States, and They'll breed up there in 24 hours of sunlight. Um, and some initial wow. work that had already been done for me and where my entire project kind of stemmed from was, was my advisor's work that he did in 2013, which was just simply some behavioral observations where he went out in the field uh, and would just walk around in four-hour blocks, you know, from midnight to 4 a.m. and observe the birds, 4 a.m. to 8 a.m., observe the birds, and just write down what they were doing. Were they resting, you know, uh, exhibiting sleep-like behavior, or were they active, you know, patrolling around, flying? Um, and essentially what he concluded was for uh, 20, uh, roughly 20 of the 24 hours each day during their uh, short six-and-a-half-week breeding period, the male long spurs are active. Um, wow. Yeah. So, so the idea is, you know, we, we didn't put sleep, he didn't and also, while I was there, we didn't put sleep transmitters on these birds, so we can't really classify. We can't say for sure uh, the average male longspur was sleeping for three hours a day, but we can mm -hmm. kind of, you know, within reason say they're active for 20 hours a day, and between three and four hours a day, these birds are not active or exhibiting sleep-like behavior or just resting is what he considered it. That's super interesting. Um, yeah. How how much does, like, a normal bird... I don't know if it varies between species, but how normal, how many hours normal is sleep? Yeah, so so it definitely varies across species, and I, I've gotten this question before, um, which means I probably should have researched it a bit better, but I've gotten <laughs> this at, at conferences and, and when I've been giving talks on this topic. You know, uh, yeah. the, it, it, it's, a lot of it is, is temporal, where, where these birds 
exist uh, doesn't necessarily determine, but influences uh, how much sleep they're able to get or uh, how much they're able to rest. You know, you've probably seen or heard of studies where birds around, you know, uh, inner cities um, due to light pollution aren't able to rest as much. And there's probably sound pollution involved as well from cars and trucks and such. Yeah. Uh, but it's highly, it's variable. It's highly variable. But um, that's why we picked the Lapland Longspur is, is how extreme it is on that scale of, of variability in sleep in birds. Mm, that's cool. Um, do they know if like if, do birds like hit REM sleep or is that just just a human thing or a mammal thing or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, they have what it's short wave sleep and then REM sleep. Um, uh, what rapid eye? Yeah, rapid eye movement. That's what REM stands for, and then SWS okay. is short wave sleep. Um, the one interesting thing about migratory birds is they've seen in a number of species that they can uh, sleep on the wing, so they're unihemispheric sleepers meaning they'll, uh, they essentially keep one half of their brain awake and the other half sleeping, and, they, and they've, see, they've uh, shown that birds can do it on the wing as well, meaning they can do it while actively flying. Um, and, you know, that has proposed some ideas that these birds are able to catch some Zs while they're, you know, migrating north. Uh, wow. To breed. wow that, that's super interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy, man. Yeah, that's crazy so how nature do that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they're it, it, in a similar way. I guess they're they're kind of like dol dolphins, which are unihemisphere mm -hmm. sleepers. Where they'll, I mean, they also sleep vertically in the water column and kind of keep half their brain on, type of deal. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm not much of a neurobiologist, so I won't go much into <laughs> <laughs> into that portion of it. But yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So when you were so you went up to Barrel, Alaska, to conduct your data collection as well, right? Yeah, so so my mostly what I was doing up there was helping out my advisor on some other uh, studies because I didn't necessarily need to do in field studies. Mm -hmm. um, so my portion of it was at the very end of the season, within the last five days, I just kind of went on a rampage out in the field and caught every male long spur I could get my hands <laughs> on. And then I took them home back to Kentucky with me. So all of my <laughs> actual work was done in Kentucky. Um, mm -hmm. How many birds did you get? Uh, we brought back, um, so when I started at WKU, Noah, my PI, already had a, a grouping of I, 15 birds, I believe. Um, and I just did some uh, um, initial work on them just to kind of get my uh, behavioral assays down, which I assume at some point I'll talk more about. But, um I personally brought back 31 birds, flew them back with me. <laughs> Ironically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was kind of interesting. They, so I, when I flew back with them, you know how usually if you have like a, a dog or a cat on board, they'll, you know, they'll let you know, the flight attendant will be like, hey, your dog made it safely. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was handed a little slip when I flew back with them <laughs> saying, everything's okay, your, your animal's um, it said, it said your blank was, was placed under the plane and is good to go. And it was handwritten in there like birds and then in parentheses, <laughs> 31 of them. <laughs> I laugh. Yeah. But anyway, they, they were, they were placed in like a modified pet carrier, mm -hmm. like one that would be ideal for like a, a German shepherd. And we just mm -hmm. kind of put mesh over the cage front and flew them back. All 31 birds in one pet carrier. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Did yeah, you they, just, uh, you take that carrier to the, the, the garbage dumpster afterwards, you bleach it out. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we clean it out. I think we've used it in, uh, or Noah's used it in subsequent seasons, so. <laughs> Good. You can make a movie out of that. Birds on the plane. <laughs> no fatalities. They do well, apparently, in, in flight. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> so how were you catching these birds was it did you use like a mist net or did you use big butterfly nets or just your bare hands or... so, <laughs> so uh yeah for the long spurs we didn't use mist nets because on the open tundra which i mean we would just get like gnarly winds some days um but uh a su i guess not surprisingly effective but an extremely effective method was using just those little walk-in potter traps um I guess for for somebody who's not you know uh, you know used to using those traps or heard about them, they're much like the best way I always describe them is it's kind of like one of those big raccoon or squirrel traps. Oh, okay. 
but in a smaller fashion where essentially the bird walks in, you put some seed in the very back of the cage and it'll walk in and step on a pressure plate and then the front door will close behind it. Um, but we used a combination <laughs> yeah, nice. of the hotter traps. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Humane, safe, safe way. Um, we used yeah. potter traps and often take a cage out there with us with another male long spur in it because these birds are extremely territorial and they have these pretty tight uh, territorial areas, like I guess these circular areas around where the female's nest is that they guard pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can, if you can locate the nest, you can put a male long spur in a cage with a potter trap next to it, and the male will get horribly aggressive and uh, <laughs> wait 10 15 minutes and the male will go uh go in the trap once it finds the food the wow scene. man i would have never thought that you could catch a songbird in like a uh what do they call have a heart trap basically yeah i mean i've caught ground birds before like when i was doing rodent trapping i caught um it's a franklin which is like a ground bird that just walks around but i would have never expected a, a songbird like that yeah, so I think a key component for this is because they're ground nesters. Oh, okay. Um, we were only capturing males, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, the females are ground nesters, and the males will kind of circle above and do this aerial display. They'll fly up really high and then just kind of shoot their wings out and flutter mm-hmm. down while they do their little song. Um, and then when they land on the ground, I mean, they're you know they're just actively keeping an eye on the female and, and kind of lingering around and uh. <clears throat> Like I said, when you when you place another male on their territory, they'll just kind of flutter up and kind of attack the cage, and, and they'll make their way into the potter trap eventually. I think we've all been there. <laughs> uh, before we move on to your ex situ analysis out of the field, um, could you tell us about just kind of what it was like to live and work in Barrow, Alaska a little bit? Because I think people would want to hear that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So... Barrow, Alaska, or uh, it goes back and forth with the native name. Um, mm-hmm. the, the Inupiat people up there call it Utkiagvik, which mm-hmm. was, um, oof. It, it either meant like the land of, of like finding roots. Uh, uh, there were two names. Man, I hope I don't, I don't mess these up. It was like uh, it, there were two names. One was like the Snowy Owl Place just because mm-hmm. they have a ton of snowy owls there. And then the other one was, was like the land of tubers or roots because they, they essentially, uh, that's what the, the natives lived off of for a long time. Um, either way, that's probably too much detail than you wanted to know. <laughs> no, no that's Alaska. great. But, but yeah, going up there was, first of all, for me, uh, Chris probably knows this, it was, it was interesting to go to um, – a place that's dry, meaning you know, no alcohol purchase, <laughs> able, uh, there's no bars, nothing. Wow. Um, that sounds awful. How did you yeah. sneak it in? So there, there's a couple of reasons for that. So mm-hmm. that's the North Slope Borough, which is essentially, at least in the United States, um, uh, anything north of the Arctic Circle uh, in Alaska. Um, Inupiat, Inupiat people have a very different tolerance to alcohol, or I guess a, a lack thereof. Um, so uh, yeah, alcohol has been banned in the area. Um, the natives fly to Anchorage to get alcohol and then <laughs> fly back with it, which I thought was was kind of wild. They'll fly back with those big boxes of Franzia and stuff. And, um, <laughs> but yeah, that, it's I mean it's remote. It's a you know it's one plane in, one plane out, twice a day. Uh, no roads in and out of Barrow itself. You can't. Uh, there's one logging road that goes to Tulik, I believe, which is just south. Um, but the only way to get there is to fly. Um, and it's just flat. It's completely flat. Uh, and there's just large pools of water uh, intermixed with it's just kind of like slushy bog uh, is really what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, yeah, in the summer when everything melts out, uh, the birds come up and, and the long spurs nest on the, on the open tundra. What's the uh, what's like the the weather like? Is it like, like temperature wise? Is it like pretty cold? It, it, so it's the summer. It was it's variable. Um, the first year I went up there, there was a late snow melt, so it was colder when we first got there. Mm-hmm. Um, took a while for the snow to melt out, and then it 
it was variable like like it would be anywhere on the coast. Like we'd get really, really gnarly um, storms off the coast and it would just be windy one day. The next day there would just be like fog where you can't see more than 10 feet in front of your face. Um, and then they have this thing, freezing fog, which is like the, mo- the most ridiculous thing I've ever experienced where this fog would roll in off the water and it would change the air temperature from from 40, 45 degrees down to 25 in a matter of minutes. Um, wow. Yeah. And, and then it would roll out and then it would be sunny again. But usually <laughs> <laughs> most of the time it was either cloudy or partly sunny and like 40, 45 degrees, maybe a little bit less. Yeah. That nice. sounds, I mean, I would enjoy that. I, I think Max would hate it. The only days it was bad was rolling around on ATVs when it was, when it was, windy. <laughs> I mean, man, you'd you'd get up the road just a little bit of the way, and your hands wouldn't even exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst. Yeah. Did you have to worry about polar bears? Oh, the first year I we saw one when we were up there, it actually got trapped in in one of the junkyards up there, the naval base junkyard. It's mm-hmm. stuck on the wrong side of the fence. Um, so they're not a problem, like rarely ever. Uh, at least from what I heard from the locals, essentially the only issue is if overnight the ice pack or like the, um, yeah, the whole slab of ice that comes up to the, to the coast. If it pushes out overnight, any polar bear that was on land and didn't make it back onto the slab of ice would get stuck inland and just kind of roam around town. Um, <laughs> I believe that's, like that's yeah, those are the only times. And, and they have hired bear guards that would come around with, um, with shotguns with, with, you know, like, um, essentially beanbag, uh, beanbag shotguns. Good. Um, yeah, and just kind of ward them off from from the locals, and you know, push them out. Um, but yeah, like, I, sorry. Yeah, well, I never really like explicitly worried about them while I was walking around in, in the field, but they they were there at times. What about uh, like wolves? Is that a uh, an issue? No, not not that far north. <clears throat> okay. Um, I think really the only other land mammal was uh, um. Uh, um, arctic foxes or, or red foxes okay mm-hmm. yeah. cool. well it sounds like they have good uh, human wildlife conflict mitigation strategies to yep. prevent that so that's that's awesome to hear yep. so you land in the airport you i presume load the carrier with the birds <laughs> into your car and open the door and then yep. get in yourself so yeah. you're in there with all your birds yep and you get back to the university, and then what do you do with these birds? So from there began a two-month transition for the birds uh, back onto to their wintering plumage. So when we caught them, um, if you know anything about birds, uh, it, when, when the summer's over and they're uh, beginning their, their flight back, um, they will, this depends on species, but they'll either make it back to their wintering ground and then shed their entire uh, breeding plumage, or they'll actually do it before they leave, st- stick around and then leave. Um, so for the long spurs, actually, when I was getting them on their flight, they were molting already, meaning they were losing uh, their, their primaries and secondary uh, wing, um, their flight wings, uh, flight mm-hmm. feathers. Um, so yeah, a two-month phase of getting them back into their wintering phase so I could then put them back on their summering uh, uh, you know, plumage, um, their breeding plumage, that is. What, what is exactly a, a breeding plumage? <clears throat> so for the males, um, you know, that like uh, sexual dimorphism in, in many species, um, where the male is typically the one who's much more colorful uh, and yeah. the female is a bit more drab uh, in, in my study species. That's how it was. The the long spurs, the male long spurs, had a um, kind of this this black mask over their face, and then a really orange nape or neck area, um, and then kind of this like pretty vibrant brownish orange down the the rest of their back and 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 wings. Um, whereas the females were just kind of like a drab brown color. Um, but yeah, so that's the difference uh, in in males and females. Gotcha. But so, from there, oh yeah. So from there, it was was kind of 
assay time. Um, do you want me to go into those like specifically now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could just give us like so, <clears throat> kind of refresh on on what the question you're trying to answer, and then the the techniques that you used to kind of pursue that question. Okay. Yeah. So so I'll start with. Uh, I have a pretty simple title, a working title for my for my master's thesis at the time. It was the effect of sleep loss on executive function and baseline plasma corticosterone levels in an Arctic breeding songbird, the Lapin longspur. And I'll I kind of I'll break that down in sections. So the first bit um, was the effect of sleep loss on executive function, which is a kind of niche component of of cognitive. Uh, um, uh, cognitive ability in general. So executive function is kind of like fine motor skills and um, kind of processing and storing information um, in, in various parts of the brain. So uh, we know in humans, um, cognitive impairment is a huge side effect of sleep loss. So I mm -hmm. uh, turned around and, and look, wanted to look at the effect of sleep loss on um, the long spurs executive function or ability to learn something uh, retain and store the information and then execute some uh, test or, or some ability based on that. Um, so that was essentially the behavioral component of my study. Uh, and then the second part was the effect of sleep loss on corticosterone levels, which is um, essentially a sh it's a stress hormone um, mm -hmm. in, in mammal, most mammals. Yeah, in humans, I'll start with humans. Humans, the, the main glucocorticoid uh, or stress hormone is, is cortisol. Uh, in birds, it's corticosterone, so um, analogous in a, in a sense there. Um, and I wanted to see, we already know, again, we know in humans, uh, sleep loss leads to increased stress. Um, so um, it, it, in the sense that there are higher corti uh, cortisol levels in humans after, after a night of not sleeping, um, you know, 24 hours of, of being awake. So I wanted to do the exact same thing, but in birds. And, and in this case, I looked at corticosterone levels. Um, how, how did you go about doing that? Did you, uh, get to keep the birds awake? Somewhere? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's a, that's a good place to start considering that the sleep loss component, um, uh, played a major part in both testing executive function as well as the court, uh, the court levels. Mm -hmm. Um, so what we did, uh, my PI has, he kind of runs a dual, um, mouse bird lab um and you know his main his main focus is the effects of sleep loss but he had he bought these machines um from lafayette instruments which it, really it's a motor that makes a, a a a metal wire move back and forth at whatever interval you want every one second this wire will move front to back and essentially it was set up set up so that you could attach it to a mouse cage and keep mice awake by making them jump over this perch, essentially making them play jump rope uh, for an extended <laughs> period of time. Um, uh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So what we did, it, it was very specifically designed for, it, it was outfitted or it out, you know, it fit perfectly to a mouse cage. Um, you know, the same couldn't be said about a bird cage. So I kind of had to develop my own um, uh, way of doing it but mm -hmm. but it was it's the same concept is what i you know i put a single perch for these birds to live on um mm -hmm. and this moving wire would move, move front to back of the bird cage over top of the perch that they were able to sit on and make them jump over it wow. uh, i ran into some initial issues where they would essentially just jump off the perch and land in the bottom of the cage and just kind of <laughs> duck their head under the, the wire and it spikes down there <laughs> no um maybe equally as torturous i pulled out the bird tray and submerged the bottom of the tray in a couple centimeters of water Ooh, um yeah so I, I made it you know i played around with how deep to make it where it wouldn't be lethal if they were sitting in it for a while you know um but also deep enough that they, it made them fairly uncomfortable um yeah if, if they were to stand there for for an extended period of time so i ran that a number of times just to make sure it would work and um you know it effectively kept birds on the perch if they touched the water they would immediately hop back up on the perch um and uh 
yeah, so that was my method of sleep fragmentation or, or yeah, fragmenting their ability to sleep when they wanted. Um, and the idea there was uh, they were kind of given, uh, I should have mentioned this, sorry, birds, uh, when they get photostimulated or receive a certain number of hours of light versus dark in a day, um, that's a main trigger of uh, uh, birds going into their breeding plumage, right? Um, mm -hmm. As the time of day or the length of day, sorry, changes on a day-to-day -day basis as we move from winter to summer solstice, solstice. Um, <laughs> yeah, is that right? Sol solstice? Solstice? I think it's solstices, right? Yeah, well, you know, I'll just make up words. They, <laughs> they, both, they both might be correct. Solstice. <laughs> solstice. Oh, no, I liked it when I first said it. But, but uh, yeah, so, so that's the main um, cue for birds to be like, hey, it's time to start breeding you know i need to start changing my plumage uh move north look for a female and be good to go um yeah. so all of these birds were placed on 12 light hours so the lights came on at 8 a.m and then went off at 8 p.m and then from 8 p.m to 8 a.m the next morning the lights were off um okay. so the idea was that when i was uh reducing sleep in birds that moving wire that i'm talking about that sleep frag sleep fragmentation machine would move front to back in the cage from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m., keeping the birds awake at night. It didn't need to move during the day because the birds were, you know, presumably awake all day anyway, which mm -hmm. they were. I, you know, I, I, I ran a few videos just to make sure they stayed awake for those 12 hours. Yeah. Well, what kind of, what interval did you do with the wire? So, oh, the wire moved from front to back every one minute. Okay. So it would make a full... Yeah, a full pass. It would move to the back and then back to the front again every one minute, which was um, uh, based on what I read from another, you know, a number of other studies, at least in mice, they did once every two minutes for acute sleep fragmentation. So I, just to kind of make sure I had a strong and, uh, you know, impact of, of the sleep fragmentation, I just cut that in half and did, did one once every minute. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. So from there, um, after, so birds were split between, you know, I had a grouping of control birds, I think 14 control birds and 15 sleep loss treatment birds. Um, the sleep loss birds, like I mentioned, receive that, uh, that moving wire from 8 PM to 8 AM when it's dark. Mm -hmm. uh, and the control birds received the moving wire during the 12 light hours and when they were presumably awake anyway, but um, the point of that was really just to kind of remove any confound, you know, that's what, that's what any good scientist would do. You know, like, <laughs> I don't want to claim to be the, a good scientist, especially not during my master's, but, um, that any, any ideal, uh, experiment should remove as many confounds as possible. So we wanted to have that wire moving for the control birds. Um, so what do you mean by, uh, confounds in relation to, like why would the wire, why did you have the wire moving only for the control birds and so, not the, yeah, yeah so let me give you a scenario here um the yeah. sleep loss birds were awake all day moving around sitting on the perch and then were kept awake via a moving wire and and essentially forced to exercise or move once every minute for 12 hours okay the control birds if they didn't receive the wire at all um they they could really sit there during the day and kind of anticipate, especially if they've gone through the sleep fragmentation machine before, they could anticipate mm -hmm. uh, receiving the wire at night and trying to catch up on sleep during the day. Another thing would be if there's no activity induced by the wire during the day, they could presumably be less tired when it came to you know running the behavioral assay. Um, so the idea was to match how many hours of physical movement we were inducing. The only difference yeah. which twelve-hour segment they were receiving it. Oh, that makes uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right, right. The, the, each bird, each group of birds gets the same amount of exercise. Right, and from, from right because because the wire could essentially make them lose mass. Right, if you're essentially you're making them exercise or work out, yeah. um, and and if there was no wire moving during the light phase those birds may have been able to retain more weight and therefore had more energy to burn when it came time to do the, the assays. Um, so it was just a good way to keep things balanced, I guess. 
That makes but, a lot um, of sense. Yeah. Mm. So from there, um, the first round, either you know the control birds received that wire during the day, sleep loss birds received it during the 12 dark hours, and then um, at 8 a.m. the next morning when the lights would kick on, I would go in and, and blood sample them. Um, and that was to do the, the uh, I guess, part B of my, I'm going backwards, but to do part B of my, um, my thesis was to look at the effect of sleep loss on corticosterone levels. And if these birds um, were truly, um, I don't want to say sleep deprived because we're getting into the wrong, we didn't deprive them of sleep, but we reduced their ability to sleep. Um, <laughs> yeah. They would potentially have higher corticosterone levels if that lack of sleep stressed them out, as we know is the case um, with humans. Yeah, right. So, so the idea was to take blood from all of them, compare control bird corticosterone levels versus sleep loss bird um, court levels. So, so what did you find at the end of this? So for that, we found significantly different uh, I forget the p-value was point, just 0.01, I think, 0.012. Um, uh, significantly different uh, uh, sleep loss birds had much higher court levels than control birds, meaning sleep loss uh, uh, did increase the stress or court levels of, the, of these yeah. birds. So um, it affects, sorry, um, it affects yeah, so like in a similar way that sleep loss affects like us humans right it's like similar parallels to birds uh yeah similar similarly in the sense that in humans higher cortisol levels in 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 uh birds higher corticosterone levels which is respectively in in both humans and birds the the main glucocorticoid or stress hormone involved um perfect yeah now what would you say to this I'm just random idea that just popped in my head. Mm -hmm. yep. Now these males that are not sleeping very much because they are on the prowl for women, so to speak. I mean, they got to be all jazzed up, right? Like they right. they've got to there's got to be something going on that's that's keeping them you know frisky for yeah. these expended periods of time. Working uh, at it, full capacity. <laughs> yeah. Does that in some way meter the effect of the heightened uh, uh, stress hormones? Or is that just, just a crazy idea? No, no, no. So uh, that's a good question. So interestingly, um, man, I th in, uh, in rats, mice, and in some birds that I've read, um, I think even in humans, yeah, definitely in humans, there have been a number of cases that show increased stress levels or increased court levels, uh, for example, Mm -hmm. leads to a temporary increase in cognitive ability um, temporarily. So we're talking acute sleep loss could actually make you, I guess, hyper, hyper aware. Um, yeah. I, that may not be the correct term. I don't want to get too much into. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, that makes sense. But um, mm. kind of, kind of having this hyper sense uh, of, you know, or this cognitive ability as opposed to where um, uh, chronic sleep loss which also is completely different in different species, what, can, what is considered chronic sleep loss. But um, that actually leads to a significant decrease in, in executive function or cognitive ability in general. So that begs the question, um, kind of like what Chris was saying, is, it, you know, I mentioned these birds have a short six and a half week breeding period. Mm -hmm. But I say short as in that's relatively shorter than other birds. It's definitely shorter than the gestation period of humans, right? Um, yeah. This is six and a half weeks short enough where these birds can reduce sleep, uh, you know, up to being awake 20 hours a day for, for six and a half weeks and be okay cognitively. Yeah. Um, I mean, like man out kind of for like six weeks. Right. Can, <laughs> can they kind of just punish themselves for six and a half weeks and everything be okay? <laughs> Or actually, is their cognitive ability better for that six and a half weeks where they're able oh, to, you know, okay. see what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Yeah, um, yeah. It, that's not something, don't get me wrong, that's not something I specifically answered with my with my two-year study. But it's, that was the idea is what I was getting at is that it's potentially a short enough amount of time for these birds to be kind of on their A game for six and a half weeks straight. Yeah, jeez, um, man. I, right. You, like, I'm not an expert at all, 
But you would think, like, evolutionarily speaking, that they would, uh, they evolved in a way where that six-week period would, is like the perfect time frame, you would think, maybe? Right, right. yeah, so it, that, you know, that kind of begs other questions of, like, why do certain populations even breed at 24, you know, where, where they experience 24 hours of sunlight? Um, yeah. You know, these, these birds also breed south, you know, su- southern parts of Canada, or I guess still technically northern parts of Canada, but okay. um, below the Arctic Circle and low enough where they would actually receive kind of closer to a summer in Anchorage where I think they, you know, it can be up to like six or seven hours of, of darkness, maybe a little bit less than that. Don't quote me on that either. But <laughs> um, uh, why not just breed a little bit more south and and not, you know, it, yeah, it it's confusing. You, but <laughs> do you think it's like the same like lineage of birds in the, the north and like do they like crossbreed between north and south or is, is it mainly like the birds like in the north might be a little bit different than uh, the other well, birds? So I, I don't know of any studies in long spurs that show, I mean, these are clearly different populations of birds, but um, at least to this day, I don't know of any study that has tracked, you know, uh, you know, if I was to put transmitters on a bunch of birds in, uh, in Barrow, Alaska and see where they come back the next year, if they all keep yeah. coming. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, we've definitely received, you know, as on birds, you can put colored bands to, you know, um, let's just say last year, a color band was yellow. So every bird you caught last year, you put a yellow band on to indicate that it was a 20, 2018 bird and then um, 2019 and so on and so forth. But yeah. uh, I've definitely caught birds that are two years old and were clearly caught up in Barrow, but that doesn't mean all birds are coming back specifically mm. to Barrow. So could, the, sorry? Oh, I was just saying they could be going back to different areas and whether they're specifically going back to areas that receive 24 hours of sunlight is is beyond my knowledge, but... I think that's a fantastic question. I think yep. Randall just dropped some hot scoops for a researcher looking for a project out here. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, yeah. I think you know, extra advantage of yeah. listening to this show, just saying. But, I think, uh, <laughs> sorry. I think, like, especially like in Alaska, like, there's, like, less, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's less people researching up there just because of the, the environment and, like, you know, small, like, small well, towns. So, yeah, I mean, in in total number of people, there are fewer people up there in general. But research is actually pretty heavy in Barrow. It, depending on depending on your field, there are a ton of of climate experts up there. Um, it's it's kind of the uh, you know the main base, or a go- it's a great starting point for for studying climate change because the northernmost yeah. area, you know, the poles are going to be hit the hardest first by things like climate change. And if you, and if you want to study or see or find those differences, you know, over, over a, you know, geological, you know, time frame, that's the place to do it. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. But there, there are a ton of researchers up there. I mean, where I stayed while I was doing my research in, in Barrow was called the Bark, which was the Barrow Arctic Research Center. And we shared that place with you know, people from Max Planck in Germany, um, you know, oh, wow. a, a number of places. They'd go out on on snowmobiles and out on these big vessels to do ice coring, and um, a, ton, a ton of stuff went on up there while we were there. That's crazy. Yeah. Are you f- familiar with uh, with uh, Matthew Walker? He's a. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you cut off for one second. I think he said no. No. Nope. Uh, I listened to a. He was on Joe Rogan like maybe like a month or two ago. He's like a, a sleep a sleep expert in like humans, and he was talking about mm-hmm. talked about a bunch of the same things you were talking about about how it raises like stress levels, and yeah. he even said that like uh, people that have like less than seven hours of sleep um, a night on average, they're at a higher risk from uh, for like Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah, and like all this crazy stuff. Yeah, there are a number. I mean, that's the craziest part. And that's what made me so interested in this topic is like, we know it's just wild to me that humans are so, I don't want to say maladapted, but uh, just based on other, just looking at other animals, it it makes me want to say maladapted, but uh, we don't tolerate lack of sleep very well, which I find pretty interesting. We're, we're, uh, we're piss poor, we're piss poor at it. Um, 
we yeah. have some pretty life-threatening side effects if we continually uh, experience less than you know the the standard seven to nine hours of sleep on a day-to-day basis, which yep. unfortunately is is kind of the norm now. I mean, the amount of hours you have to work in a day-to-day <laughs> really to, to make enough money to live in this world. That's a whole yeah. nother can of worms we can talk about at a, on a, at a future date, but yeah, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I hope some, I, I wish somebody was there to take my, uh, stress, you know, cortical cortisol levels when I was fin- in my final semester there during my master's <laughs> teaching and grading for four classes <laughs> and writing my thesis and taking a class. Yeah. Uh, I remember, um, this is an aside, but yeah. I think it'll still be funny. But that meeting where um, <laughs> Carl came into the office, he's like, you know, guys, to, to be successful here, you need a great work ethic. And, you know, I think a great example of that would be Chris. You know, when I'm coming in in the morning at 6 o'clock in the morning, you know who I see in the office? Chris. <laughs> and he thought I was coming in at 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I was you, already... You were... <laughs> you were about ready to leave after being there since since four in the afternoon or well earlier. I mean, all, all yeah. day, whole day of school. Man, we'd be in there till midnight, one a.m. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <was> ridiculous. <laughs> but you know, hey, I was uh, for a while before that became chronic. We're circling back into the research material here. When that was just acute and not chronic, you know, it's fine. But repetitively over time, yeah, at uh, was rough. That's the equivalent yeah. of the six, the six week for the, <laughs> for the bird is your uh, last semester. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. Totally. But yeah. sounds rough. All right, so we're gonna make a, a transition to a slightly different topic because I think it'll be very interesting for people to hear. Um, and you're kind of unique in this case because right now you have transition from universities in the states to a university in canada um and you've moved basically all the way across the continent from kentucky (laughs) slash south carolina to vancouver british columbia so (laughs) so let's let's run through how that process works now what were some of the difficulties i'm sure there were like visa applications and all that kind of stuff which in my experience can be the worst thing in the world going through a visa process yeah well i'll say i would be in big trouble if i didn't admit this but i was so during the whole visa application and the the time i had to get all that paperwork in essentially um i was in alaska for a second year um my my project was already done at this point but i went up with noah again to help him out on some some field work with snow buntings and some some additional stuff in long spurs. But anyway, uh, internet was not great. And uh, my partner here back in the uh, States, you you met her, Chris Hunter, actually Mm -hmm. completed, filed, handed in all of my visa work for me while I was gone. Wow. So I will admit I I can't share personal experience on – uh, completing my visa application or study permit going. Yeah, Max, Max, cut, cut the line, cut them off. <laughs> lock, yeah, <laughs> you need to lock that down. Well, hey, prop, yeah, props to her. Yeah, man, yeah. just yeah. just a little name drop. Yeah. No, that's awesome. She yep. uh, took care of business. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah she t- she took care of that and then made the drive all the way to Canada with me. Mm. <laughs> Commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what. Uh, let's not. Anyway, no, uh, no, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but now, what are you studying now for your PhD? And I mean, I understand you probably can't drop, all, you know, spill all the beans on this one. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, give us kind of a lowdown on what you're working on now. And, you know, are there any adversity that you've experienced transitioning from kind of the master's? setup that we had into a PhD program across basically almost a quarter of the world, basically. Right. So tra- transitioning has actually been um, pretty easy so far from, from master's to PhD. I, I 
I'm not sure how it would work with other people, but from what I understand, when you first get in, it's when you first go from master's to PhD, there are few instances. I don't want to presume, you know, I don't want to be too presumptuous here, but there are rare cases where you actually hit the ground running and you're like in the lab day one doing work. You've got something going on. Um, there's kind of there's kind of a, a major slow period before you get into what you're working on. It's that's really dependent on who your PI is. What you know is has there any is there any funded research ready to hit the ground running with? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's been a bit of a slow start, but I was actually handed uh, 20 years worth of historical data that my <laughs> PI has been collecting since 2001. Um, and, uh, or I guess just before that. Yeah. Uh, sounds useful. And he, and he said, just take a look at this, just play <laughs> around, you know, just take a look at it, play around with, take with a look at- this data and, and see what's going on. You know, are there any trends in, um, so that's really been my slow start as I've been data analysis. I hit the ground running with data analysis essentially, and kind of looking at how maybe this historical historical data could kind of um, help me develop some major questions that I that I'd like to ask for my for my you know, PhD dissertation um, I bet you so that's I'm sure that has been seemingly agonizingly slow in the beginning but I'm sure that will give you a jump yeah, uh, yeah. in the future it's kind of like a leg like a, a like good a, foundation. Like good foundation yeah. and kind of like a, a turbo and an right. engine, right? You got to spool it up first, and then <laughs> it's gonna push you yeah. forward. Yeah. yeah, it's been it's been really good. It's been a great way to familiarize myself with one the study system in general, which is European starlings and this, tw- you know, over twenty year. I think he's had these nest boxes at the same site for about twenty five years, in which he was collecting data at first by himself, and then when he started taking on uh, more masters and PhD students, it it, it became a much bigger project quickly um but yeah it was a great place to start and familiarize myself with the data and and everything um so yeah. i don't i don't want to again i understand you probably can't uh spill too many beans about this this cutting edge research here but i did see uh, a tweet which mm. we're gonna drop his uh, uh communications <laughs> uh, at the end of the episode i did see a tweet where you were creating and affixing uh backpacks for birds yeah, yeah so so i this <laughs> so i'll preface <laughs> this with uh um since i haven't really been out in the field yet or collecting physical data um, um you know like i said just historical stuff for now but mm-hmm. i we're my pi and i are, are playing around with this idea this old idea something that ha- not much attention has been brought to but it has been brought to before um I don't know, back in the 70s as well as the 80s, about adaptive mass loss and how um, avian reproduction or reproductive efforts may not be as difficult as once presumed, which is a very touchy subject because um, it's it's very it's well known that, <laughs> or you know, I say that with an asterisk. It's well known that that reproduction is extremely costly to not only the individuals but especially if an individual doesn't perform well being the you know the mother and father of a you know mating pair um it can be costly to the offspring as well um so i'm playing with this idea that well i don't i don't i don't think it's that costly because birds have this these ways of mediating these costs associated with um, uh, uh, with reproduction or the, these difficulties, uh, with reproduction. Um, and one way I'm working with that now is adding, like Chris said, these weighted backpacks, you know, they're not transmitters of any sort. Uh, they're mm-hmm. essentially just harness backpack harnesses that I filled with, um, lead shot from uh, like, you know, the fishing let split shot. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I filled, this is my unscientific approach to this. Uh, I chopped up pieces of pen, so I removed the ink <laughs> bits from pen, from pens, uh, and filled them with lead shot, and then glued them at both ends. Glued two pen caps on both ends, 
and then ran rubber bands or like this little like medical grade cord through them um, and the idea is to put them on birds and see if this old idea of adaptive mass loss is is potentially true true for our um specific mm. system um how do you know you're not just gonna end up with a bunch of like bodybuilder birds yeah seriously <laughs> yeah so it's yeah th- i mean <laughs> this is this is extremely new to me as well but uh mm. the idea is that birds kind of um i guess live at this optimum uh, uh weight and any deviation from that weight can be costly in the sense that uh, being too light can be, um, can, you know, you don't have enough fat reserves or energy reserves, um, especially if food is limited. But if you're too heavy, then you risk predation, right? That's that. That's, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. That that's the cost of yeah. of being too big of a bird or too small of a bird. So the idea is, if you throw a three gram weight on a little zebra finch, it should, if this adaptive mass loss idea is the case, in the sense it would uh, it would uh, effectively lose three grams or somewhere around three grams to compensate. Mm. So there wouldn't be a cost to adding that weight if it can uh, effectively lose three grams and still be okay. If you uh. put it on a 10 gram bird and it loses three grams, that's probably not ideal, right? You now have a seven gram zebra finch and it's it's way too small. Um, yeah, yeah. You limit that bird a few hours with food and it's it probably won't survive. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so, so that's the idea for now. Um, testing it in in the lab, but the idea is to to turn around and do it with with uh, European starlings out in the field. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. I would love to hear the results when you get them. Yeah. 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 Um, I wasn't I trying. Sorry, I wasn't trying to uh, kind of sewer the idea. I was just trying to present it with humor, because uh, I think it sounds like a good idea, uh, and and that kind of uh, test and failure retest is very important uh, yeah. in yeah. science. Which I'm not preaching to you, but you know, to no, 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 yes, you know, to 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 state. Uh, a lot of the time, when we come to a new project as scientists, we don't know exactly what we're going to do, and we're tasked with developing innovative strange ideas with how to do it yep. like yep. backpacks for birds or treadmills for <laughs> yeah. shrimp or yep. <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of ideas yep. yeah yeah when i first heard you say backpacks for birds i was thinking like wait what's in the backpack that's what's a bird there's like, a bird in the backpack backpacks for yeah. birds yeah, like this is a new charity extra nest material in there. <laughs> i thought it was like a backpack that a human would wear that a bird was just inside <laughs> you know a bird was inside of it <laughs> it's a new collection uh it's called data collection backpack specifically yep. for ornithologists <laughs> put their birds in their backpacks and then that's fine sounds super useful so that's what you're working on now. European starlings, which are in which country, specifically your interest? What I mean, they are invasive, just in all of North oh, America. Oh, okay, but yeah, need, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm, they're invasive, mm-hmm. um, not meant to be here. And that's also they're a good choice to study for that reason in the wild as well, because um, no nobody really cares what you do to them within reason. Nobody. Nobody cares. <laughs> you know, and, you have uh, to get proper permits for, for um, I different mean, animals. You yeah. can't be mm. abusing animals. No, 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 no. I didn't, but... didn't, didn't mean to go that route. <laughs> I just meant, I meant it's it's quite easier. Um, it's like a, a, a mouse. It's like the mouse equivalent of a yeah. bird. Yeah, but these right. European right. starlings, right. they they're, were... They're just a really great model. And they were introduced by the guy who wanted to recreate Shakespeare's poems in Central Park, correct? I I have read that somewhere, yes. Yeah, Uh, so this guy brought over, he read Shakespeare's works, or, you know, let's not go down the conspiracy lane, but (laughs) the artist or artists known as Shakespeare, you know, let's not get (laughs) too far into that. (laughs) Anyway, he read them all, and then, uh, you know... The artist or artists known as Shakespeare used a lot of birds in their literary works, and this person <laughs> wanted—I don't remember the name—they wanted to create or recreate 
the visions of Shakespeare with these birds. Yep. And if I if I'm not Steve. mistaken, the uh, initial importation of European starlings failed, and then they re-imported them, and the second importation took actually off. worked. <laughs> I, I could be wrong, yeah, but yeah. how <laughs> ridiculous is that? <laughs> I've never heard that bit, but yeah, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't. I'm actually. I'd be a little surprised that they that they didn't succeed the first time around. I guess I'm assuming that they released enough of them to make uh-huh. to make a dent. I mean, if they released two or three, yeah, I can understand that. But <laughs> sure. It could have been a, a, a skewed sex ratio that, yeah. that messed that up. <laughs> releases all males. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like two hundred males. Okay. <laughs> and honestly, sure that would have been the right decision, right? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. one gonna one big generation of gay birds. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, well, let's not go down. There. <laughs> but yes, open here. It's fine. so um, we are about an hour in. We like to clip our episodes at about an hour. Yep. Uh, do you have any concluding thoughts or uh, concluding statements you would like to make? Oh man, uh, about <laughs> anything about anything specific or just a, a general. Literally anything. And then we're gonna plug your social media as well. Oh, I'll be I'll be concise and as vague as possible. Uh that <laughs> uh, science, yes. science is horribly difficult. It's horribly difficult and annoying at times, but but it's it's worth it. It's it's very rewarding and worth it. And I think that's kind of like going back to the very beginning of what I was talking about of of, of watching my dad uh uh you know, at, at work, do his job. Like I never, there's no way in hell I was ever going to spend my entire life in the lab. Um, I like being out in the field, but when you're, when you complete work, it's, uh, yeah, it's super rewarding. I don't know who needs to hear that, but it's just, it's a work, you know, PhD masters, all of it can be very overwhelming, but when you get your, your finished products, yeah. I think that's very important for people to hear, and both sides of it, that it is exceptionally difficult to do. Yeah. And I don't mean like uh, trying to be like a brainiac, like bragging. I mean like it's just hard work, like hard work, long hours, yeah, underpaid. Uh, well, let's. I'm not going to complain there, but <laughs> it it has its whole suit of problems. But but if you can find value in it. And it, like with any job, I guess I'm preaching to the choir here. But if you can find <laughs> value in it in any sense, it's 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 worth it. So there there is a lot of gratification uh, when things actually work. Uh, yeah, it, oh, that, that was from the uh, employee of the year, Max. Uh, they they didn't use those words exactly, but I mean it. You know, end of the year thing, so probably. Yeah, recognized at the end of the year meeting, uh, potentially the employee of the year. Uh, yes. Yeah, I will tell you, it's very gratifying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is. It absolutely is a very gratifying process. Yeah. As we said, you know, there's trial and error, failure, and re- redesigns and testing and retesting and everything. Yeah. But then when things come successful for you, they come right. You get like a little, you know, a little warmth in your chest and a single tear. All is right. All all is right in the world then. Uh, yeah, for yeah. about forty five minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you're smacked in the face with the next problem. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we is that your your closing statements? I thought that was a really yeah. good one. Yeah. 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 Cool. That's my my vague closing statement. <laughs> you know what? Everyone can find their own wisdom in that for whatever they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Take but it uh, it <laughs> I just wanted to say, you know, thank you to everybody who's listened to the show and come on the show. We really appreciate it. Um, we had significant support in our first season, which is why we're recording our first episode of season two tonight. Um, it's We're going to do the best we can to put out products uh, on a regular basis. However, schedules are not easy to manage. Um, thank you, Brett, for coming on today. Okay, uh, social media. A holiday. And Brett, would you like to tell us where people can find you on social media? Yeah, so 
so the go-to now for me, I guess, is Twitter. I've uh, mo more recently ch devoted my Twitter to more professional tweets. Chris has probably seen a few that would kind <laughs> of uh, not not really back that idea, but I, I try to be as professional <laughs> as possible. Oh, it's way harder uh, than the sound. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they, <laughs> but my my Twitter is just at Brett Hodinka, B R E T T H O D I N K A. The last name is is often horribly mispronounced and misspelled, so that's okay. But, uh, and then and then the only other one I use is Instagram, which is typically just flooded with bird pictures or pictures of beautiful British Columbia, which is uh, Brett underscore Hodinka, same spelling. But, this guy is a good photographer. Yeah, a lot of uh, still scenes I would describe them as. Yeah, well, uh, objects like boats or yeah. anything is a good photographer. Check out <laughs> even just for that interest. We're gonna add both of those to the comment section of this uh, this episode. Um, Brett, you were great to have on. Uh, yes, super interesting. Um, yeah, man, thank you. I, I mean, I'm, you pretty much I'm stole the show. <laughs> yeah, I, I really liked how your uh, closing statements uh, just made a whole round circle. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. A whole hopefully round circle. Hopefully I inspire some uh, some of your viewers. <laughs> I mean, that's what the show is about, right? Yeah. yeah. Anybody can do science. Uh, science is for everybody. You can participate at any level. And just, you know, Brett Hodinka, great guest, carried the show. All we had to do is press record. <laughs> and then, you know, just took off from there. But, well, that, uh... Is that because I... Never mind, go ahead, go ahead. No, as a final uh, statement, uh, as I said before, we're recording this on January 1st, 2020, which is a Wednesday. So those of you who are followers of the faith, may the spirit of Wednesday carry you gracefully and swiftly into the future this day the first day of a new decade that was vaguely specific i'm going with it every every single wednesday i'm going to think about that and just be like wednesday channel the power of wednesday channel baby. the power of wednesday all right i like that i like that <laughs> all right so next time